Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I interview Werner Herzog about his new film, Meeting Gorbachev. He directed in collaboration with Andre Singer, who's produced many of Herzog's documentaries. Herzog conducted three interviews with Mikhail Gorbachev that span his career from his rise to power to the breakup of the Soviet Union. During the last of our three conversations, spanning half a year, I understood that everything about Gorbachev was genuine. In April 2018, we met again at the headquarters of his foundation. To the left, Andre Singer, with whom I have a long history of collaborations. We had planned to meet Mikhail Gorbachev a month earlier, but at that time he was hospitalized. Having been released a few days prior, he literally summoned us to conclude our conversations. Herzog was born in Munich in 1942 during World War II. He grew up in West Germany at a time when it was divided from the Soviet-influenced East Germany. He credits Gorbachev for playing an important role in the events that led to the country's reunification. Meeting Gorbachev is being released in theaters this month. Last September, I hosted Herzog at TIFF's Doc Conference. Here's our conversation. Werner, I should say, in uh, setting up your conversation with, uh, with Gorbachev, one of the themes that comes up is his role in fo- helping foster the reunification of Germany, and, and you talk about that as being such an important thing in your life. Because we're talking about Germans and Russians, I want to go back to uh, your childhood growing up in post-war Germany and ask you, as you were growing up, what it, what it meant to you to be German. Uh, that was always something difficult because uh, early on I understood that, for example, in relationship to Russia, that uh, the invasion of uh, Nazi armies had uh, caused the death of 20, 25, 27 million uh, um, people. So many people perished. Uh, and, um, and can I ask, it, you know, at what age would you have been conscious of that and how would have you become conscious of that? Um, fairly early on, five, six, seven years of age. But of course I had a notion that there was a dangerous world out there. There was something like war out there when I was two and a half years old. My mother ripped my older brother and me in the middle of the night out of our beds and it was still winter and wrapped us in blankets and went up on a slope next to the house and she said, boys, I took you out. You have to see this. There's a dangerous world out there. And she said, the city of Rosenheim is burning. You have to see that. In the city of Rosenheim, 40 miles away, and uh, at the end of the valley, mountains left and right, you saw the sky, and it was slowly pulsing. It was not a flickering of conflagration, it was too far away. It was pulsing in red and orange and yellow, 
and and that's engraved into my into my soul forever this image and i knew there was a world out there there was something like war and it was dangerous and burning and uh, so I, I always was very, very sensitive to what uh, had happened. Russia, of course, in, in particular, because um, there was so much uh, misery and destruction and devastation inflicted by Germany on Russia uh, in particular. I have to imagine that many Germans thought of Russians as aggressors who had inflicted damage and pain on their country. Um, no, I, it, it, it was quite clear, it, it was Germany who started the whole thing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry to say that, but it's correct and of course one of the consequences of the Second World War was that Germany was divided. And I always had this very deep uh, sentiment, this feeling in me that uh, the country belongs together, we should be reunited and I think the same way about Ireland, I think the same way about Koreas, mm -hmm. the North and South Korea. Um, there's something um, much deeper than just politics. Mm -hmm. And politics had abandoned uh, reunification at the time where I really became alarmed was when Willy Brandt, whom I liked a lot, the German Chancellor at that time, declared the book of the German reunification closed. Mm. He, there was a rationale behind it. He wanted to, in small steps, approach East Germany, the communist, <clears throat> communist East, to make life a little bit more tolerable for people in the East. But uh, I, I said to myself, now a German chancellor has to acknowledge that there are things beyond politics, things that are much deeper. Uh, that are of deep historical dimension. And uh, Gunter Grass, for example, uh, the Nobel Prize winning uh, writer, was vehemently against unification. Mm. And I said to myself, if uh, this quest has been abandoned in politics, uh, I, I'm called upon to hold it together. And, I walked around my own country, all the sinuations of the border and up in the mountains, down in the mountains. So, um, and I had the feeling I had to hold it together. And because of that, I, I liked Gorbachev a lot because he um, made it possible that Germany was uh, reunited and without any bloodshed. All these events normally cost a lot of a lot of uh, misery and bloodshed and violence. And this was a non-violent uh, thing and Gorbachev uh, was the person who made it possible. Now, let me ask you about your history uh, with Russia. What was your first experience of, of going to Russia? I've been uh, in Russia from the 1970s on but not only Russia, it was the Soviet Union. I, I worked as an actor in a science fiction film. Uh, and the, most of it was shot in uh, Kiev, in, the, to, in Ukraine, some of it in Tajikistan, uh, in the Pamir, near the Pamir Mountains. What so, was your role in the film? Uh, I was some sort of a prophet uh, <laughs> who, 
who actually has to disappear 20 minutes into the film. I'm cowardly murdered from behind with a spear. So I'm out, I'm out of the movie after 20 minutes. Uh, it was an interesting part uh, made by uh, Peter Fleischmann, one of the young German filmmakers at the time. And I've been off and on in the Soviet Union and later in Russia when the Soviet Union um, disintegrated. Always working. I was never a tourist. Always working, making films. And uh, I am married to my Russian wife who originally uh, came from uh, Siberia, western part of Siberia. So part of my family is, is Russian now and I see um, all their travails and tribulations and how they uh, were faring over the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. So I have a deeper insight in, in a way than a, a regular tourist would have. Mm. And uh, what are the things in Russian culture that you respond strongly to? Poetry. And you will see in, in the film about uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, it's not only about this one particular person. In a way, secretly, uh, it is a film about the Russian soul. And uh, you will see it in Gorbachev. He's a manifestation of the Russian soul his depth, his tragedy. And at the end, all of a sudden, out of the blue, is, uh, he says, I'm going to sing. He doesn't sing, but he re recites a poem uh, by the, one of the greatest poets of all time, Lermontov, uh, who lived between uh, 1840 and 1846 or so. He, he only was... Uh, 26 years old when he died in a duel like Pushkin. Mm. Um, and this poem has such power and has such depth and gives so much insight into the very soul of Russia that the moment Gorbachev finishes to recite it, he fades away and I have the scrawl of the same poem again. Mm -hmm because it's so deep and so wonderful. I, it's useful to be able to take it in twice. I force you to take it in twice. <laughs> so that's my privilege as a filmmaker. And I just do it, I do it uh, without any, any constraint. I just love it. <laughs> I want to ask you about your own experience of the reunification uh, of, of Germany. Um, because it was at the time something that was so unforeseen by most people. What are your memories of when that began to occur? Well, I saw uh, that, uh, <clears throat> for example, um, hundreds of thousands assembled each Monday and uh, they would chant, and it's in the film, they would chant, we are the people, we are the people because the regime always claimed we, the government, are, are representatives of the people and we do uh, our communism in, in the name of the people and hundreds of thousands stood up every Monday and they chanted, no, we are the people. And, and you can't overlook it. Or a human chain in the Baltics, half the population of three countries 
uh, held hands and, and you see it in the film. It's an endless chain of, of humanity and you cannot ignore it. It's, it's beyond politics. There's some deep quest inside of people and same quest like uh, that was inside of me. Uh, it took me by surprise because I was filming in Patagonia on the southernmost tip uh, of South America and in, in the mountains at Cerro Torre. I did a feature film there. And we had barely any contact and only four days belated, I got a radio sort of message, the Berlin Wall has come down. And I stopped shooting, I said uh, to the entire crew and the actors, I just heard on the radio that the wall came down. Can we uh, give me 10 minutes to absorb it? This is so enormous. So we were all stood around and somebody had a, a bottle of, uh, of brandy and we toasted and it, um, the, the moment, the depth of, uh, of this feeling I cannot describe. And I knew it was the first step into reunification, which came only a few years, a few years later. Reunification itself was not a surprise anymore. You conducted three interviews with Gorbachev in October, last October, December, and then most recently April, April uh, if I'm correct. And you described uh, last night at uh, the premiere that you had read his yeah. uh, recent uh, biography and done lots of other uh, research in, uh, in preparation for it. But you weren't coming to this interview thinking as a journalist necessarily. But can you describe what you felt your role was in interviewing him? Well, uh, Gorbachev uh, knew that he was not going to talk to a journalist. He knew about, about me and my work. He even had many pages of uh, uh, explaining himself vis-a-vis -vis my, my work that I had done. I said, oh, Mikhail Sergeyevich, please, please, please don't do that now. Let's turn on the cameras and let's go right into business. And he knew, he said in a way, in, in a joke, but it was meant seriously. He said, ah, oh, yeah, I'm going to talk to a poet. And, and I said, you are right, Mr. President, you are right. And I had no uh, paper with me, no catalogue of questions like a journalist normally would have. So it was conversations. Uh, and I followed the flow and I tried to stretch out my feelers and I, I tried to uh, have an understanding of the very basics of the man. And um, it was good like that. It was good like that in some things I wanted to discuss with him that were completely unusual, new thoughts. But of course he's 87 years and not flexible anymore. I wanted to discuss Japan 1603, where there was a big battle and almost no uh, firearms left, 26 firearms. But 10 years prior, in 1592 or 93, there was a very big battle, very well documented, 180,000 Japanese samurai on one side, and they had, one third of them had firearms, 60,000 firearms. And without a formal declaration, or without any formal sort of uh, treaty, Samurais decided we are getting rid of firearms. Mm. 
but it didn't last very long. What I tried to find out what is the intrinsic uh, quality of these kind of weapon systems, firearms, nuclear weapons, uh, that make them so hard to abolish. We do not want them, and yet they are persistent. And uh, he did not really follow a new thought. He would immediately respond with, uh, I would say, almost a mantra of getting rid, we have to get rid of nuclear arms. He wouldn't discuss a new idea about what makes them intrinsically so He could so pivot to the 15th century. You could not, yes, I tried to, to maneuver and, and I immediately saw you cannot do it. Yeah. Or for example, on the last meeting, he was sometimes very stubborn. We had our cameras and our sound and our light all wonderfully arranged three cameras, and he said, no, I'm not going to sit in this chair. And uh, I said, uh, okay, uh, Michael Sergeyevich, where then? Yeah, at, at his desk in the office, but I said, we can't have the cameras uh, move there. And like, he said, oh, it doesn't matter, so we do it without camera. <laughs> and and our, <laughs> our main cameraman just grabbed quickly a small... Uh, a small digital camera and started to handheld, uh, shoot the entire last session, one camera handheld. Uh, and for example, the poem he, since he speaks Russian, of course, uh, he understood this was important. I have to hang on to, to Mikhail Sergeyevich and, and record the entire poem. So um, yes, I had my surprises and he, he was very, very somehow forceful and uh, I had to follow the flow and I enjoyed it. Well, when I first saw this film earlier this summer, it struck me that of all the topics you've covered, all the fascinating personalities yeah. throughout dozens uh, of films, politicians have rarely come up, uh, if ever. I can't even really think of a, a major politician mm -hmm. um, in your work. And I wonder if that was a conscious choice or not. Well, the project was somehow brought to me by Andre Singer. And I immediately understood this was big. as something uh, of, of great importance. And I thought, can I do it? And I immediately thought, yes, I can do this. And it would be a joy to do it because I, wouldn't, I couldn't do a film on anyone, a ski-flying world champion or a politician or a villain like Aguirre or so without somehow having either deep respect or even love to this character. And I said, yes, I'm going to do it and I will do it well. Because you felt that. Uh, yes, it was. And it doesn't matter whether I've done a film on a, a great political figure it, it doesn't really matter. It's all within uh, a worldview. You see, the subjects may be uh, very dispersed, but there's a common worldview in, in, in the films. That's what I, that what I notice when I, when I see films on the screen. I, it's strange here. It says ma maverick. I, I'm not. All the others are mavericks. <laughs> the people I, in I'm, your films, you think, are mavericks? No, I'm the center in what I'm doing. All the others are the cows oh, that see. are astray <laughs> somewhere in the distance. I, I make sense. 
And hence, all the others are mavericks. Over your career, there, you know, politics does not come up uh, so directly. And I wonder if, there, if you've made a conscious choice to, in, in past to avoid confronting politics head on. In movies, yes, but, but I have been a, a, a politically interested person, but I don't have, I don't have political talents. Um, you need to be a very good speaker to crowds, then, then you are, uh, the very first and most important step already has, has been done. But uh, I try to avoid day-to-day -day politics in, in my films. Uh, it's not a fertile ground. Politics belongs somewhere else. Uh, but it's uh, not a, a strange thing that I did a film on, on Mikhail Gorbachev. You draw upon uh, a large uh, reservoir of archival footage, and I, and I feel um, throughout your films you enjoy working with, uh, uh, with other footage. Um, can you talk about some of the footage that you uncovered here and what it meant to you? Well, most of the archival footage was done by Andre Singer, my co-director, and uh, we had some very, very um, intelligent uh, researchers, mostly in Russia. And of course, uh, there were certain things I was looking out for. I had read, for example, in the uh, wonderful biography by William Taubman on Gorbachev. Um, he describes a moment where uh, the aging, senile Brezhnev fumbles a ceremony handing a medal to Gorbachev. And Brezhnev uh, forgets the name of Gorbachev, has to be whispered, has to be assisted by an aide, but the microphone is open enough to pick it up. And then uh, Brezhnev says, forgets why he's giving the medal and he asks Gorbachev, he says, uh, you have come here, uh, why, wh what was it all about? Why have you come here? And Gorbachev puts in the missing word canal because he opened a, a big important canal and Brezhnev uh, is happy and says canal. So, and I knew Taubman must have seen some footage and we systematically searched for it and we found it. It is a remarkable moment. Or, or for example, uh, the last uh, um, predecessor of uh, Gorbachev, they all died, they were all old men, Brezhnev, Andropov, Chernyenko, all in their 80s, and uh, Chernyenko was terminally ill when he was selected General Secretary of the Communist Party, and they staged fake, uh, um, uh, for example, ballot casting, his... Uh, hospital room was rigged as a polling station and from behind an aide helps holding uh, Chernenko to stand upright. And you see a hand uh, from the side at, at his waist and I say, watch the, watch the hand at his waist and there's a man standing behind him to hold him upright. It was all a charade. And fake working sessions were, were held and we knew that had happened, and I said, find footage of that, find it, find it. But of course, uh, it was hard to find it, and uh, we got permission to use it. Mm. So, some of it uh, was evident uh, to see how popular uh, Gorbachev was in the West. Uh, 
it's easy, yes, uh, you go to any country, you visit it and you will have footage. But some very specific footage that we found uh, was um, very intense, intense search behind it. Let me ask you about your collaborations over the years with Andre Sainer. Um, he's a filmmaker in his own right with a long career. Uh, I understand that uh, you guys began your association nearly 30 years ago when he was commissioning editor at BBC and uh, asked you to do Lessons of Darkness, your film about the Kuwaiti yeah. oil fields. Well, he didn't ask me to do it. I came with him uh, wanting he to do it. He gave you money to do it. <laughs> yes, but he immediately understood uh, there was something beyond politics, by the way. There was, it was bigger than politics. It was, in, hence the film never mentions neither the country Kuwait nor Saddam Hussein's armies who set all the oil wells on fire at that time. Uh, and it was so big, the event, that I said, this is uh, not a political crime alone, it's a crime against creation. And because it is so big, it has a cosmic dimension, I want to do it as a science fiction film. And André said, that's something I've never heard before, go ahead, just do it. And, and in such a way, we have always collaborated, mostly him as a... Um, as a producer or co-producer. In some cases, we did a small, very small film in south of, uh, uh, south of Sudan, today southern Sudan, border with, uh, uh, sorry, Ethiopia, border with Sudan and Kenya. And uh, we stayed out in the middle of uh, the field and stayed in a tent and there was something not right with the floor of the tent and he woke up and I woke up early in the morning and actually what was kind of stirring was a big snake under the floor of the tent. In other words, I have had a very intelligent discourse with him, a very trustful collaboration in productions and we even slept on the same snake. <laughs> And it's been a lasting uh, collaboration. I guess the yes. snake makes it a lasting collaboration. No, it's, it's just, it's just a, a funny episode, but uh, I wanted to mention it because it's actually the truth. And, uh, and here with uh, Gorbachev, uh, he always understood uh, there was something which is contemporary about Gorbachev. I said to him, I do not want to mess around in contemporary uh, politics, but more in general. Here we have a, a case where a great figure of historical dimensions made things possible that were unthinkable at the time. The Cold War at its coldest. He meeting Ronald Reagan, the most unlikely person with whom you would think he could uh, connect, and it worked. And they. Uh, together triggered the biggest arms reduction in world history. They got rid of the most dangerous of all weapon systems, the short and medium range delivery systems, the rockets, where you could hit from German soil the men's room in the Kremlin within 210 seconds. Mm. So there's no reaction time. And all this is, all this is uh, banned until today these treaties are valid. Mm. And I had the feeling uh, there is something, a lesson there, 
a lesson. Uh, we should not return to Cold War. We should not return to augmenting and renewing nuclear arsenals. They are too dangerous. And uh, the entire demonization of Russia is something I think it is, is not productive. And I do believe that Russia uh, would be a much more natural ally to the West than other big powers. And uh, hopefully it will return, the climate might shift, and maybe this film could play a little part in it. Uh, but it's a very general attitude. It's not, uh, we are never uh, discussing Trump or King Jong-un or you just name it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a mood, it's a very, very important attitude, a climate that has to be created and should return. You, it feels like you want to start from a position of optimism towards disarmament and towards seeking peace. Uh, yes, and mutual respect. It's seeking peace. Uh, well, there is no war between the West and, uh, and Russia, but uh, I don't like to see how, uh, um, how the mood is shifting and the, um, the narrative is shifting towards things that should not happen again, like war or Cold War. Let me ask you about uh, another filmmaker who made a contribution to this film, and that's Vitaly Mansky, uh, yes. a filmmaker from originally from Ukraine, who spent many years in Russia, now uh, lives in Latvia. Uh, he's here at this festival uh, with his new film called Putin's Witnesses, uh, based on footage he shot yeah. with Putin in the year 2000. But uh, earlier than that, uh, in the 1990s, he had made a film about Gorbachev, and you use some of that footage. Can you talk about yes. this contribution? Um, well, I'm forever grateful to Vitali because he would allow me to use an entire segment of his film, which he shot in, uh, in the year 2000 at Easter holidays. Gorbachev returned to his home village, visits the place where he lived, and it's all empty, and everybody has died. And he uh, uh, has reminiscences of his wife, Raisa, who was his great love of his life. And he meets his old surviving aunt who is blind. And it's, it's a wonderful encounter. And, and I said uh, to Vitali, it would be wonderful if you could allow me to use this segment from your film because I want to show the soul of the man, the person, the deep soul, of course, I do have other footage and things that I shot myself, him reciting the poem, for example. And um, what Vitali allowed me to use is filmmaking at its best. It's a wonderful, a wonderful episode that uh, I was allowed to use, and I'm very, very grateful. I saw his film uh, yesterday in the afternoon, and uh, I do understand uh, that he um, has emigrated to Latvia. I do not follow all the details of why, and I do not know all his motivation, but uh, I respect him. 
And it was the first time you were meeting first. Face, I face never face had face. seen him. I didn't even know how he looked like. And somebody said, this is Vitali. I was waiting. This is him. And I immediately gave him a, a good Bavarian hug. <laughs> so... You, you mentioned Gorbachev's uh, relationship with his wife, Raisa, and yeah. it, it is an important part of, uh, of your film. And you, you make a point in the film that, uh, of, of observing how often they appeared in public together. Yeah. And you made a point that it was obvious to me in retrospect, but I'd never thought of uh, before, how unusual that had been in the sequence of uh, of Soviet leaders before then. You never uh, saw a Soviet leader with yeah. their spouse. Um, they were non-existent in public life, no. non-existent. So I wanted to ask you to elaborate more on why you felt it was important to talk about that, the private side of, of Gorbachev's life besides just his public life. Well, I also wanted to, uh, to show the human being and beyond the human being, something that is uh, particularly Russian. There's a depth of, of the Russian soul, and in Gorbachev's case, and in many cases that you see in Russia, a deep sense of tragedy. And he's a, he's a tragic figure because he's mostly considered a traitor in, uh, in Russia. So, because um, he's blamed for the dissolution yes, of which he, the Soviet he, Union, he vehemently opposed it. And the moment it took place, within 48 hours, he stepped back, he stepped down, and uh, left political life. So um, that's a smaller aspect to the tragedy of, of Gorbachev. But at the same time, I was fascinated when when you speak about his. Uh, wife Raisa, because uh, there, there is something which I felt in common with him, because I'm uh, happily married, and uh, since I'm married uh, with my wife Lena, it has been like 25 years of honeymoon, <laughs> and uh, I feel blessed, and Gorbachev the same way. He, uh, he, he knew, he knows he was a blessed man. There was nobody like her. And um, I had a hard time to ask him, uh, but I did it. I asked him, how much do you miss her? And he looks at me silently and looks and looks and he says, uh, when she died, my life was taken from me. And I do not say anything, and I hold it, and I hold it, and he looks, he looks at me in, in this very, very intense silence, and then he does this. And I still feel the goosebumps when, when I just think about this. Make, makes me cry when... When I think about this, it's a very moving moment in the film. Yeah, I, I, that whatever you experience yeah. there, I think, is transmitted yeah. on screen. Um, but not only a personal moment; it's a Russian moment, mm -hmm. and I love Russia for for the depth of of their emotions, and the depth of their poetry, and and the depth of uh, um, 
the discourse you can have with, with Russians. Since you brought up your wife, Lena, I should acknowledge she's a very accomplished photographer and many other yeah. things uh, herself. And you were telling me about an extraordinary project uh, she's doing right now uh, on lost languages. And maybe I can take a moment to ask you to yeah. describe that. Well, she has done an oratorio uh, about a little less than an hour composed of voices that are extinct meaning that they are only existing on, in tape recordings in some voices where there is a definitive only last speaker of a language left. And uh, combined with a, a contemplative video and it's an immersive sort of uh, installation with islands of sound. And it points to something which I find astonishing that the Toronto Film Festival all of a sudden acknowledges the indigenous ground on which this festival is held. Uh, and we should also acknowledge that we have something like maybe 6,000 something languages left and they are disappearing at a rate that is absolutely shocking and alarming. By the end of this century, maybe 90% of all the languages spoken today will be lost. And it's not only the languages, it's more than that. It's worldviews expressed in form of language. And I find it alarming beyond description. And she has touched a chord uh, of something very important, as important as, let's say, the ecological movement. Yes, it is important that um, the snow leopard uh, should survive in some sorts of whales should survive, but nobody talks about disappearance of human, uh, of human cultures and human people and, uh, and languages. As someone who was brought up speaking German now uh, speaks English, and I think you have other languages too, do you, when, when you are speaking English versus speaking German, do you feel that you have a different identity? No, not a different identity, but a certain caution about language. And it has been good to married life that we, my wife and I do not speak Russian, nor do we speak German to each other. We meet at a, at, at a, at a level of language that is neither hers nor mine. And hence, we are very cautious. We are very, very cautious. In all the years I've been with her, there was not one foul word not one ugly word, because we are careful with language. And, and this is part of maintenance. It's good maintenance. That's my advice for, one of my advices, <laughs> one of my advices from, for, for married life, uh, the daily attention, the daily attention. It's a, it's a, it's a great gift. It's such a, such a gift of God that we, uh, that we can be married and uh, that things work out and you're not alone anymore and uh, you have found your soulmate. That's uh, an incredible uh, gift to, to us as human beings. We better take care of it. I want to ask you about one of your most, <clears throat> uh, quoted formulations yeah. uh, about your nonfiction filmmaking that uh, you're in search of an ecstatic truth. Um, 
And I wonder if I could just ask you to elaborate again what you mean when you describe being in search of an ecstatic truth. I try to make it short. Uh, I'm sick and tired of films that are only fact-based uh, because facts do not constitute truth. Facts are something different. They're important because they have normative, normative power. They change the norms. Uh, Truth, uh, we, nobody, by the way, knows what it is. Uh, neither philosophers, not even mathematicians could tell you what it is. But, but I think you basically understand what I'm talking about, a quest for it at least. And uh, I try to find truth um, in a deeper way, a deeper strata uh, of it. Uh, and that means uh, imagination, stylizations, sometimes even outright invention in, in documentary films, because sometimes invention brings you closer to uh, an intrinsic truth than adding fact, 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 fact. Uh, it doesn't illuminate you. I'm looking for something that allows us to step outside of ourselves as an audience and experience something deep, uh, where we take a deep breath and we know there is a truth in it. For example, the poem of Lermon Lermontov at the end of Gorbachev. Uh, you, you just, it, it just takes your breath away because of its depth. And you know the poem contains a deep truth about Russia and it contains a deep truth about Gorbachev. More than any uh, accumulation of facts of his life. And I keep saying... If you think uh, facts create uh, truth, then you better read from uh, first to last page the uh, phone directory of Manhattan, four million entries, every single one factually correct, but it doesn't illuminate you. It's not the book of books. It is not. So get away from the phone directory and... and go into poetry instead. Okay. You had a birthday last week, uh, turned uh, 76. Um, and I wondered, you know, as you get into your 70s, if you think differently about the projects you take on and the time you have. No. Uh, <clears throat> I still try... I still try unsuccessfully to keep uh, abreast with the onslaught of ideas and projects and visions and things. So I cannot never catch up. So I finished uh, the film on Gorbachev three weeks ago. But meanwhile, I have finished a feature film in Japan in Japanese language. I have done almost all of a film for BBC on... Uh, the British writer Bruce Chatwin. While I'm sitting here and have two almost finished films, there are four or five feature films that are somehow haunting me and that I want to do. So I can work faster today because the tools are faster. I can edit today almost as fast as I'm thinking. Uh, Grizzly Man was edited in nine days. Uh, into the Abyss was edited in five days because uh, digitally, well, I do not shoot very much for uh, Into the Abyss. I shot six hours footage. Uh, 
in front of Japanese feature film, a full-length feature film, I have six and a half hours footage. So it can be edited quickly because there's not much to edit. You just put it together and that's it. And I know it's raw and powerful and you just leave it like that. So I, uh, <clears throat> I always, and I have never done anything else in my life, I always do the things where I, I'm totally and utterly convinced this is something you cannot, you cannot avoid. This is so big you have to do it. It touches me so deeply uh, that I know it will touch a, some audience out there as well. Mm. I'm not a spokesperson, but I know in a strange way that I'm uh, in contact with an anonymous amount of audience out there. For my last question, I don't think I would ever think to ask this, but because you asked Gorbachev, I want to ask, do you think about what would be inscribed on your tombstone? Oh, for God's sake, no, it should. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, I shouldn't die. Number two, there shouldn't. Number two, Sorry for saying something as impertinent. So, but uh, number two, I think there shouldn't be a, a gravestone. I, uh, I don't know how I, I, I would die, but maybe from a stray bullet sometimes or whatever. Uh, I have left, I have led um, a somewhat dangerous life at some, at some times. I have no clue, but when uh, Gorbachev's comes up, uh, we tried. Yes, it's a beautiful one. It, it is beautiful. Uh, I've done my best. I've always tried to be a good soldier. I've never felt I was an artist, but I always had the feeling, you soldier on, you do the, you do the doable, and you hold the outpost that has been abandoned by so many. I want to thank Werner Herzog for joining me at TIFF.Conference. His new film, Meeting Gorbachev, is being released this month in theaters. If you're in New York City, please join us in person for Pure Nonfiction at IFC Center. Each Tuesday, we show a documentary, followed by a conversation with the filmmakers or other special guests. Our spring season runs through the end of May. You can get more information on our website. Thanks to our team, series producer Anna Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, who passed away in March at age 82. Our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Pure Nonfiction. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. <laughs>